him, turn off the lights, rock him, sing him a song, pray with him. We do all these things. And then eventually you just got to put him in the crib and hope that he will fall asleep at some point, even if he's fighting you. And so one night we decided to try out the pack and play. I don't remember why we were doing that, but a pack and play is just basically a portable crib for those of you who haven't experienced little kids. And so for some reason we had the pack and play set up in his room. We rocked him, we did the songs, we did all that stuff, and I put him down in the pack and play and I left his room. And he was pretty fussy, he didn't want me to leave, and I went across the hall into our room and I could hear him on the monitor crying. But then I waited for a few minutes, and it got quiet. So I thought, ah, you know that moment, parents, where it's like, finally, they're calming down. They're going to go to sleep. And then all of a sudden, I heard this. And so I ran out in the hallway, and there was my two-year-old son standing there smiling at me like I broke free. And all I could think was, oh, no, like he broke out of the baby cage we put him in, and if he can get free, what are we going to do now? Like, I, I was just thinking, we're never going to have a peaceful night of sleep again. Once he figures out how to get out, it's over then. All bets are off. And he still can't get out of his crib. He, hasn't, he, I, he could, but for some reason he hasn't figured that one out. But that night he got out. And as I was reading through Mark chapter 3, Mark 3, 20 through 35, I thought about that because that's exactly what's happening in our text this morning. They have placed Jesus in a cage, in a box. Their expectations of the Messiah and who they think he should be and how he should behave and what his purpose should be, they placed it in a box. And in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is busting right out of their box and they don't know how to respond. So what I want to do right now is read Mark 3, verse 20 through 35, kind of a lengthier reading than maybe I would normally do. So Uh, I challenge you right now to open up your Bible and to follow along. I'm always a big proponent. You're going to get out of this what you put in. And if you follow along, uh, let's let God's Word speak this morning, starting at the end of verse 19 of Mark chapter 3. Then he went home, and the crowd came together again so they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then, indeed, the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside looking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is what I've referred to before as a Markin sandwich. In the technical theological terms, it's an inclusio. 
This is, Mark does this throughout the telling of his gospel. He starts with one story. So he starts with Jesus' family. They come to him, there's this crowd, and his family comes and they think he's out of his mind and they've come to restrain him. But before Jesus addresses his family, Mark then moves to the scribes who have come from Jerusalem and they're accusing Jesus of teaming up with Satan. And then so Jesus addresses them and then he comes back to his family. So you see it starts here, goes here, comes back here. So it's a a sandwich. Mark puts it all together for a purpose in telling the story. And it kind of reminds me of this church that I read about in northeastern Madrid. For years they had this picture, this painting of Jesus hanging on their church walls. In English, the painting is called Behold the Man. It's a picture of Jesus looking very humble with a crown of thorns around his head right before the crucifixion. And the painting had been on the church walls for years, and then all of a sudden, one day, somebody vandalized the picture. So the authorities were trying to figure out who would do this, who would mark on this painting of Jesus. And through some investigation, What they came to realize was the person who did it was a woman in her 80s, an elderly woman, a parishioner of that congregation named Cecilia Jimenez. She was the one, and she confessed, and she said, I don't see what the big deal is. I did it in broad daylight, but no one was expecting her to do it. She took this painting of Jesus, and she said, this is my favorite portrayal of Jesus, and she was bothered by the fact that all the moisture from the church walls was causing the picture to flake. So she thought she could take the picture and do her own little art restoration project. And when she finished, she placed the picture back on the wall. And this is what her final project looked like. News reporters who got a hold of this said that she turned Jesus into this monkey-like appearance. It was a botched art restoration project. I read that story, and it's kind of funny. You look at the picture, and it's funny. But then I think, how often do we do that with Jesus in our own lives? Like we have an idea in mind, maybe our presuppositions, maybe church traditions that we've been taught growing up, maybe it's a certain way of viewing the Bible, and we have this picture of Jesus in mind. And I don't just mean a physical picture of Jesus, like what he should look like. We have a picture in mind of who we think Jesus is, or at least how he should behave. And when he doesn't behave like that, we try to maybe paint over him. And we want him to support our causes. We want him to approve what we want him to approve. And then when we read the Gospels and we think, oh, this is a little different, and then we just try to paint over it and do our own project on it. And that's what's happening in Mark chapter 3. Jesus has been placed in a box, and so they're trying to paint over who he really is. And he's busting right out of the cage that they have created for him. So let's look at Mark chapter 3, verse 20, really the end of verse 19 from the in RSV, and let's just go through this. At the end of verse 19, it says, Then he went home, or he went into the house. Now, for us, when we read through Mark, we may not think much about that. He's just describing where Jesus' location is. But for the early church, for Mark's original audience that he's writing to, this was significant. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus going in and out of homes, in and out of houses. And in the first century, this original audience that Jesus, uh, that Mark was writing to, uh, they had been kicked out of the synagogue and rejected by their families. 
By the time Mark writes the gospel, uh, Christianity and Judaism were obviously different from one another. And so for those who professed faith in Christ, they no longer had a place to go and worship. Most of their lives, they would go to the local synagogue to worship. But as time went on in the first century, they were no longer allowed to do that. So guess where they went? They had nowhere else to go. They had no church building, so they went to the home. And they would worship in each other's houses for really the first three centuries. And they were kicked out of the synagogues. And most of them were rejected by their families because of their faith in Jesus. So if you place yourself in Mark's original audience and you see that Jesus goes into a home and then his own earthly family rejects him, they would have felt that. They would have felt that connection that Mark was trying to make between Jesus and their situation. You see, earlier in Mark chapter 3, Jesus calls the official 12 apostles. And they follow him. In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, they are to be with him so that eventually they will be sent out by him. And the first thing that they witness following Jesus is this massive amount of rejection and Jesus being misunderstood. And he's misunderstood by his own family. So they come to take him, and in verse 20 it says, in verse 21 it says he's out of his mind. Which literally means he's standing outside of himself, which will come into play later on in Mark chapter 3. So they come to restrain him. They think he's out of his mind. And in, one of the things I skipped over in Mark chapter 3, verse 20, there's a crowd that's gathered to Jesus. And we see Jesus doing this throughout Mark's gospel. He gathers groups of people. They come to him. He feeds them. He heals them. He teaches them. Mark shows us that Jesus is a shepherd. So he's acting as a shepherd, and his family's coming to restrain him. And then he moves from his family in those accusations. And in verse 22, we have the scribes who have come from Jerusalem, and they're saying the reason that Jesus can cast out demons is because he has a demon. He's teaming up with Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Sharon Dowd is a commentator, a Markan scholar, so to speak. And she says that this accusation was an accusation of practicing magic. Magicians in the ancient world uh, were claimed to have taken control of the gods so that the gods would do their bidding for them. And that's how they were able to practice their magic arts. And so what the audience probably would have heard is that they're accusing Jesus of practicing magic arts and he's got control of this God, little g, Satan, and that's how he's able to cast out demons. It's a pretty strong accusation. It doesn't happen by accident. They didn't just accidentally say something like this. So Jesus responds to them in verse 23 and following, and it's a good response. He basically says, you know, there's not a civil war that's taking place in Satan's kingdom. It's not like Satan is fighting against Satan. And then in verse 27, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. So who's the strong man? Jesus is the strong man in this story. And you see in Mark chapter 1 and verse 7, John the Baptist had been pointing people to Jesus and he said, one more powerful than I is coming. One stronger than I is coming. So That's Jesus. He is the strong man, and he's come in 
to Satan's territory where Satan has some reign and he's wrecking havoc all over Satan's work. He's the strong man. He's tying up Satan. He's coming to his territory. So Jesus is presented not only as a shepherd, but also as a warrior. I mentioned this about a month ago as we looked at Isaiah chapter 40 and how Mark uses Isaiah as a way of telling his story. And Mark presents Jesus as not only a shepherd, but he has a warrior. He's down in the trenches and he's fighting against Satan. And then we get this really strong response, these strong words from Jesus in verse 28 and 29. In 28 he says, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. So we know that about Jesus. That's the euangelion. That's the good news. He comes to offer forgiveness of sins. But he says there is one sin that has eternal consequences. If you commit this, you will not be forgiven. And that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And Christians for 2,000 years now have been perplexed about this passage. What does he mean by this? How do we know if we've committed this unforgivable sin? Uh, I took the Gospel of Mark as an online class through Lubbock Christian. And I had a professor named Dr. Michael Martin. And when we got to this text, he said that he spends a lot of time trying to convince people, you probably have not committed this sin. Because it's very specific and very direct what they are doing here. You know, what they're committing. Blasphemy means slander, to speak falsely of God. So they're speaking falsely of the Holy Spirit. You know, we see from Mark chapter 1 when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit comes and descends on Jesus. And then the Spirit immediately drives him into the wilderness where Jesus has a victory over Satan. So what's driving Jesus' ministry and his work is the Holy Spirit. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the speaking falsely or the slandering of the Holy Spirit is literally labeling the work of the Spirit in Jesus as the work of Satan. That's point blank what that means when he says blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So chances are you probably have not done that. So if you're worried about it, maybe you can take a deep breath and relax a little. But there is some lessons that we can learn from this part in Mark. His family's accusing him of being out of his mind, and the religious leaders, man, they're mean. That's a mean thing to do. Jesus is doing some great work for people, and they're saying, no, the reason that you can do it is because you have a demon. And one of the lessons I think we can learn from the whole first part of Mark, from what we looked at last week in Mark chapter 2, and a lot of what we're studying here, is to be careful not to assume wrong intentions in other people. That's instinctively what they do with Jesus. This is different. This is weird. We don't get it. We don't know why he's doing what he's doing. So they just automatically assume the wrong intentions in him. And I put this reference to Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 40. Because later on in Mark, there's a man casting out demons in Jesus' name. And the disciples say, stop. We don't know who you are. We don't know anything about you. And Jesus says, don't stop him. Anybody who's doing this in my name can't then speak evil against me. And he said, whoever is not against us is for us. So the disciples automatically assume maybe there's some negative or false intentions in this guy. 
And Jesus says, no, he's for us. He's on our side. Don't automatically assume wrong intentions in other people. And that's easy to do, isn't it? I mean, I could say this over and over. We always see ourselves in the best light and others in the worst light. So your challenge the last few weeks as we've studied through Mark, as we see in Jesus, he goes away and he's alone with God. He's with people and then he's alone with God. And so we challenged you the last two weeks to spend 15 minutes each day with quiet time, alone with God. And I'm tempted to say, raise your hand if you did it, but I'm not going to do that because I, I don't want people to not raise their hand, and then I'll be disappointed, and that'll be in my head. So we're not going to do that, but I hope that you did practice this 15 minutes of alone time with God. And that's not that long. For me personally, the time that I spent had a lot to do with solitude and silence. With getting away from all the distractions, the phones, the TVs, the to-do lists. And I at least when I'd set my timer, try to spend a good 10 minutes in silence. And sometimes longer than that. And that seems like you're wasting time. But what's true for me and what's true for a lot of people who have spent a lot of time in silence is usually what happens when you get past all the little rabbit trails and the places your mind goes, if you spend enough time in silence, what comes to the surface is the, your own junk, right? The stuff that you've kind of suppressed and pushed away and you can ignore and not have to deal with because you can constantly distract yourself. And then once you start dealing with your own junk, you realize your own flaws, your own sinfulness, and your own need for God. But even beyond that, once you realize that about yourself, what that can lead you to is compassion. So when you look at other people, instead of looking at them with the wrong intentions and assuming, well, they're sinful, look at what they do, no, you, you have compassion because you realize your own nature and your own need for God. And just like Jesus, if you spend enough time now, and Jesus was with people a lot. I'm not saying he was some hermit out in the woods somewhere. Jesus was with people, but he carved out that time to be alone with God. And if you do that, your spiritual awareness is, will be raised. You'll be able to see in others and what other people are teaching and some of the messages you're hearing on the news and on TV and on social media. As your spiritual awareness is raised you can have a, a pretty healthy idea whether or not something is coming from God. If you spend enough time in his word and enough time with God, right? And the scribes didn't do that. They had no compassion and they had very little spiritual awareness. Such little spiritual awareness that they have God in the flesh right there in front of them and they're saying, no, he's with Satan, right? So it's a strong accusation. It doesn't happen by accident. And so Jesus is very direct with them. So Mark deals with that. And now he comes back to his family at the end of Mark chapter 3. Then his mother and his brothers came standing outside. They sent to him and called him. Notice where they are standing. They're standing outside. The accusation that they give to Jesus, he's out of his mind, which literally means he's standing outside of himself, and now they're the ones standing outside. But the crowd gets his attention, and they tell him, your, your mother and your brothers, they're outside looking for you, which, I, you know, we're all probably perplexed. How is Mary a part of this? 
And we read Matthew and Luke, and we know the dream and the vision, and she knows how she got pregnant and by the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus is special, and that the angel told her that Jesus was going to be the ruler of a kingdom and be a savior of the world. And, and now yet she's here thinking, but still, even with those visions and all this time, she's kind of placed her expectations of what that angel ter- told her in a box. And she's thinking, this doesn't fit it. I don't get it. Like, this is not what I was expecting. And so his whole family comes to get him, and then he has this response in verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers? This is what Paul read this morning. He looked at those who sat around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my mother and sister and brother. Now, to us in the world and the culture that we live in, Not everybody does this, but a lot of people, when you graduate high school, you go off to college in another town, and then, like me, you never live at home again. And that's not that uncommon. We have Skype, we have phones, we have ways to communicate, we have cars, and we can go visit each other. I mean, you're still separated from your family, but it's not like it would have been in the first century. Uh, A great New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright said that these words of Jesus... These were scandalous. This is a redefinition of family. In a world and a culture in which family probably lived together their whole lives, if not really close to each other. They probably shared a family business that was passed down from generation to generation. So for Jesus to redefine family in this way, man, that would have been scandalous. So he looks around the room and he says, no, my family, whoever does the will of God. And we have language like church family, so we're kind of used to this, but imagine the shock and the sting for those who initially heard this. So I put lessons to be learned. Is this true for your life? I guess that's more of a question than a lesson to be learned, but if this is the definition of family that Jesus gives, is that true for you and I? I know for my family, for the Garner family, we've been here almost a year and a half now. So about a year and a half ago, I had no idea who most of you were, and you had no idea who I was. And yet we've been here for a year and a half, and based on Jesus' definition of family, you're family. We're supposed to be family together. We don't know each other for that long, we're still getting to know each other. But this is not where we grew up. This is not the community that we really knew much about. And so this is what we have. We have family. We have connection with those who do the will of God. And that's how Jesus redefined family. And I I think that's a paradox. It seems self-contradictory, but there's some truth to it. You know, these early Christians were being kicked out of the synagogue and rejected by their own families So the family that they found were those who shared a faith in Christ Jesus. It's a bond that's stronger than blood, thicker than blood. And In a way, Jesus kind of changed the world with this statement, with this definition. But you take all of Mark chapter 3, and kind of like my son busting out of that pack and play, you know, they put Jesus in a box, their expectations of what the Messiah would be and should be, they placed him in a box, and it's not a box he ever asked to be placed in. And I think we still do that sometimes. 
we, I put certainty on there, this word certainty. Sometimes we just want to know for certain that what we believe, the way we interpret the Bible or the traditions that we have are exactly the way they need to be and we're right. And what we wind up doing, incidentally, is placing God in a box. Peter Enns is a Bible scholar and he coined this phrase, the sin of certainty. And what he means by that is that God does not ask us to place him in a box and then have to be exactly certain about making sense of God all the time. But what God is asking is our trust, is that we trust in him and that we can trust that Jesus is who he says he is. And what we see in Mark 3 is Jesus' own family and religious leaders, they didn't trust I mean, all the signs were there that Jesus is here, that this really is the long-awaited Messiah, but they just couldn't trust in that because it didn't fit in the box that they were so certain about, that he was going to come and be this earthly king, and they're going to fight back and take the throne back over the Romans. And they placed him in this box, and Jesus said, no, I'm not staying in that box. So we, we want to challenge you with something throughout this sermon series. And I've mentioned before, I don't want these challenges to just be a sermon point. I know sermons need to have points, and we need to write stuff down, but we want this to be something that you actually go and do. So the last two weeks, we challenged you with the 15 minutes of alone time with God, and I hope that you continue to do that and build those times into your weekly schedule as we see this rhythm of life in Jesus and Mark. And this challenge, this new challenge, is Scripture memorization. And this isn't just coming from me. I mean, sort of it is, but we've met with the staff many times. We've met with the elders. We've talked and prayed about this for a long time. So your new challenge is scripture memorization. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute. Isn't this what we do in, like, children's classes? Don't they have memory verses and they take their sheet home with them and do their memory verse? Like, we're adults. Do we really need to memorize scripture? We live in a world where we're flooded with information. Can't we just Google it? Like, do we really need to memorize Scripture still? We can just Google it, and we can read all these different translations. Do we still need to memorize? You know, Jesus lived in a world where they memorized. Most, probably Jesus had the entire Hebrew Scriptures memorized. We just don't memorize things very often any longer in our culture because, frankly, we really don't need to. But most of the time, the information stays in our head. And it doesn't always transfer down to the heart. And it's easy, like I'm saying, placing God in a box to read the Bible and just kind of place it in this section in our head, and it doesn't make its way down into us. Not just into our heart, but internalized within us. So our challenge to you is to memorize Mark chapter 4, verse 1 through 20. Seems like a lengthy passage, or maybe it seems easy to you, but I promise you it's not as easy as you would think. I tried to memorize part of the Sermon on the Mount a few months ago, and it wasn't easy. This is one of my favorite spiritual disciplines. Right? The discipline of quiet time is this discipline of abstinence, but this is a discipline of engagement, where you're actually engaging God's Word. And as a church, as Pine Tree, we did the read through the Bible last year, and we had this chart on the hallway in there of everybody that was reading through the Bible. Those are good things to do. 
but being from a restoration movement background, Church of Christ background, we have largely emphasized head knowledge and being right where others are wrong. But this isn't about just consuming large chunks of Scripture just to check it off our list. Not that you do that, but this is about slowing down and meditating and memorizing and being open to God's Word. And I can only imagine what God could do through a church where we knew that everybody is memorizing the same section, the same red letters, the same teachings of Jesus. And you might be surprised at how God will speak to you if you slow down long enough to really dwell in His Word. It's about taking a long, ardent gaze at God. Most of the time we read the Bible, but this is about letting the Bible read you. So there's your challenge. I hope you write it down. I know the youth group has been working on this. I began working on this. I have Mark chapter 4, verse 1, the very first sentence memorized, so I have a ways to go. But we have the temptation of just kind of compartmentalizing and placing God in a box and saying, you stay here, I'll see you on Sunday morning, and then I'm going to go about the rest of my week, just like the religious leaders did. But Jesus has a way of busting out of that. And this is about letting God be God in our lives and letting that word soak into our hearts. This morning, uh, you may be in a place in life where you've had a hard week. I mean, I I know that I experience that sometimes. Maybe you're just down in life or you're battling some sort of like, you know, mental problem right now or a physical problem. I'm not sure where you're at in life, but this is a safe place for you. And if you have prayer requests, And you need to come up front in just a moment. We're going to invite you to do that. We'll also have some of our elders, our shepherds, who are going to be around the room. And if you have an issue where you just want to go talk to an elder and pray with them or set up a time for later in the week, we just want you to know that this is a part of our invitation. You should be able to find the shepherds around the room. So we invite you with this challenge and with the response right now. Let's stand and let's sing.